Well, we're going to talk about a pretty uh, heavy subject uh, today as we come to uh, this passage in uh, the book of Hebrews and our study through Hebrews. And, you know, there are times as a pastor when, you know, you, you preach messages and you, you just feel like, wow, this is one that can really resonate maybe with people who need to hear the gospel or people who need to be encouraged in their faith. But when you preach the whole counsel of God and you preach through a book of the Bible as we're doing in the book of Hebrews, verse by verse, sometimes you come to passages that you wish you could just skip. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I believe that we need to preach the whole counsel of God. And so this is a pretty tough passage, and I hope you'll uh, listen uh, carefully and then hope it'll maybe spawn some further study as you dig deeper into the Word of God. But the question before us this morning is what happens when a believer renounces Christ? Now I can tell you what church history has taught in many denominations, the Roman Catholic Church and other schisms and uh, you know, different ologies throughout church history have taught. By and large, most have taught that if a Christian renounces Christ, they're done for. Forget it. They're going to hell. But of course, we believe the Bible is the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. So any question, no matter how profound or unsettling it might be, has to be answered only through the lens of Scripture, not through the lens of church history. What happens when a Christian, a believer, renounces Christ? It's a serious matter. And that's what the original recipients of this letter in the book of Hebrews were contemplating, as we've talked about many times. And I think it's helpful to understand uh, not only this passage, but the entire argument of the book of Hebrews to review, once again, what this, the cultural setting was. But we're, we're, we're going through this series in Hebrews that I'm calling Unshakable Faith because the theme of Hebrews is trusting God in trying times. And if you remember, the year was roughly 67 to 69 A.D. There were uh, believers who were uh, facing intense persecution under uh, the uh, Roman Emperor Nero. Uh, Christianity was some 30 years old by this time, midway through maybe 30 to 40 years old. And as Christianity began to spread westward and more and more people believed in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as the only one who could save them from the penalty of sin and became born again, became Christians. Uh, Rome and, and Judaism, the the bought and paid for Jewish leaders of the day, were becoming a little more and more concerned. They were losing their grip on people. And the state, official state religion of Judaism was, was uh, really becoming concerned. And so Nero, who had all sorts of problems, was quite insane, frankly. Uh, he began to make uh, Christians the scapegoat and began to uh, you know, uh, arrest and imprison and even um, murder uh, Christians, burning them at the stake. And so it's in that context that some believers, and remember we said that uh, many of these believers that were the original recipients of the letter of Hebrews, many of them probably got saved on the day of Pentecost back in Jerusalem. So some of them, many of them perhaps, had been Christians for 30 years. Some of them had been Christians for less time than that. But nevertheless, they all found themselves facing the same crisis. Do I continue to associate with and identify with Christianity, 
which at that time was a relatively new movement, or, and in so doing, risk persecution and even death, or do I slowly fade away and renounce my association with Christianity, go back to the way it used to be in Judaism, start walking and, and talking and fellowshipping with that group again, and sort of fly below the radar? What do I do? So it makes it a little bit, hopefully, easier for us to understand why some Christians in that time frame were, in fact, saying, I don't want to have anything to do with Christianity. And by the way, this is not the only example we see in the New Testament of people who made a similar decision. Um, consider, for example, the Apostle Peter. Now, granted, his was more limited in its time scope, but nevertheless, for similar reasons, uh, of being afraid of the mobs, being ashamed, being worrying about what people would think about him, in that moment, three times, he not only renounced Christ, but cursed him. And then we, we happen to have the rest of the story in his case, and we know eventually he was broken for his sin, repented, and came back into fellowship with Christ. But he did not lose his eternal salvation in that moment. And nor do these first century believers who in a moment of weakness were contemplating renouncing Christ lose their eternal salvation. And I'm going to make that case based on the Word of God this morning uh, as it relates to apostasy. So you may recall I mentioned that as the author of Hebrews makes his argument, which at its core is how to trust God in trying times. In the course of what we now have as 13 chapters, remember the original Bible did not have chapters in it, but in the course of the 13 chapters of our English Bible, five different times the author uses a particularly pointed and um, powerful uh, challenge or warning, we call it. We call these the warning passages. And we've looked at two of those so far. We looked at the, the danger of neglect, from the first part of chapter 2. And then we looked after that at the danger of doubt when we came to chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. And he talked in the past about how dangerous it was to neglect the, the things that come with salvation and the regular things that will help you grow in the faith. We talked about how doubt can be a real danger um, because it leads to weakness and bad, poor decisions. And today we come to the third of those warning passages, the danger of apostasy apostasy. Now before we get into Hebrews chapter 6 and look at this passage in its context, I want to kind of begin with a bit of a preface and lay the foundation. There are, according to Scripture, three classes we might call of Christians. Three classes of Christians. We've already seen one of these talked about, and that is baby Christians. When a person comes to faith in Christ, no matter how old they are physically, whether you came to faith in Christ as a child or later on as an adult, or anywhere in between, spiritually speaking, at that moment of conversion, when you are born again, spiritually, born from above, the Bible says, you become a baby Christian, a newborn babe in Christ. All right? So you'll notice here, in keeping with the theme of the, uh, the uh, slides that I'm using here on the video, I consider baby Christians where... It's not like a full-blown storm or danger, but it's sort of clouds, cloudy. You're not really sure what lies ahead. You haven't really embraced yourself in the Word of God. You haven't been discipled and taught 
Uh, you're just, you know Jesus loved you enough to die for you. He rose from the dead. You know that by placing your faith in Him, you've been born again, sealed until the day of redemption. You've received the indwelling Holy Spirit. You have new life in Christ. But you're sort of standing on the threshold of a new life saying, now what? Right? The second class of Christian is maturing Christians. Now, notice I say maturing and not mature, because maturity as a believer this side of heaven is not someplace you arrive, like you get to the point, okay, I've grown enough, I have understand it all, I understand the entire Bible, I understand all the spiritual intricacies of following Christ, I've arrived. That's not what the Bible teaches. As long as we are this side of glory, meaning we're living you know, this side of heaven, uh, we're going to have to wrestle with the flesh and the, the fallen nature and the, the struggles of life and the inequities of this world in which we live. And so really the whole Christian life becomes one of walking by faith and not by sight, trusting God. We've talked about this quite a few times already in this series, the, the no trust, obey model. You've got to know God to trust Him. You've got to trust Him to obey Him. If you don't know Him, you're not going to trust Him. If you don't trust Him, you're not going to obey Him. And how do you know Him? By getting into His Word and fellowshipping with other believers and so forth. So I call that the maturing process. Now, maturing believers, maturing Christians may be at different levels of their knowledge and understanding and spiritual insight and wisdom, depending on how deep they've grown in the Lord. But there's got to be a, there, there ought to be a forward trajectory. There ought to be a, a sense of which maybe it's three steps forward, two steps back now and then, but you're moving in the right direction. You're fellowshipping with the Lord. So baby Christians, newborn Christians, and then maturing Christians. But there's a third class that is pretty serious, and that's the one the writer is talking about here, and that's apostate Christians. An apostate Christian is one who has departed from the faith. Maybe at one point they were growing in their faith. They're definitely a Christian. That the issue of their eternal destiny is not at stake here. It's the issue is their fellowship with the Lord. But these are those who have drifted so far away from the Lord that at some point they made the conscious decision to say, I really don't want to have anything to do with the Lord. Now, in the context of this uh, message, we're talking about those who might become apostate Christians because of intense pressure and persecution and life circumstance. And maybe, as we're going to see this morning, they were ill-equipped to handle it because they had not been in the Word. They had been not growing, and so they were sort of sitting ducks for this kind of thing. But I want to tell you there are many reasons why some believer might choose to walk away from the Lord. It's not always persecution. The highways of Christianity are littered with people who, for one reason or another, have made the unfortunate and very serious decision to walk away from the Lord and say, I don't want to have anything else to do with it. In 32 years of ministry, I've talked to a lot of people who have children, adult children, who they're, they're praying for and they, their heart is just grieved over them because they've turned away from, from Christ. And they know, these parents, they know that this, this child of theirs at some point placed his or her faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. And they're really torn and puzzled. And how can this be? And, and, and it hurts and they pray for them diligently. And they so pray for them to come back to the Lord. And we're going to talk about what the writer of Hebrews says is involved in that. But more often than not, when I come across people who are sharing that life story, they have come to the hasty conclusion that their son, daughter, friend, whoever it might be, must not be a Christian. Because, of course, no Christian would turn away from the Lord, right? 
Well, but what does the Bible say? The Bible certainly doesn't say that. Our eternal destiny is not contingent upon us being able to hang on to Christ. The moment you trust Christ, He gives you eternal life, and that's a present possession. And if it could ever be lost again, it's not eternal life, is it? It's got the worst name you could give it. Yet Jesus says, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. And so <clears throat> the first thing I try to do in those situations is counsel those people. Look, I don't know your son. I don't know your daughter. I don't know your friend. I don't know if they know the Lord or not. But I can tell you this much. If there ever was a point in time when they, by faith, trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, then that issue is settled. And what we're dealing with now is an apostate Christian who needs to be come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and be brought back into the Lord. But what, what causes people to come to this point? Maybe it's a, a, a tragedy in life. Maybe because of the fallen world in which we live, they face an unspeakable tragedy. Maybe it's the loss of a child, the loss of a loved one. Maybe their husband or wife died of cancer. But something happened that rattled their faith. And because they weren't maturing to the point where they could handle such a crisis, where they would say, like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him, they went the opposite direction, shook their fist at God and said, I don't know why this happened. I'm done. And they walk away. Tragedies, difficulties, uh, inequities, problems, persecution. I think I've mentioned before, I don't remember if it was in the worship hour or one of our Bible study hours, who among us can say with absolute certainty that if at some point in the future someone were to put a gun to our head like is happening all over the world today, more, more persecution of Christians today than at any other time in human history, so what, what these Hebrew Christians were dealing with in the first century is not novel. It is directly relevant today. And by the way, if the Lord tarries is coming, it may become very relevant in America. But, but let's just know, state for the fact that certainly in other parts of the world right now this is happening. But who among us can say with absolute certainty that if someone put a gun to our head and said, deny the Lord, we would say, Jesus is my Lord and I'm ready to meet him. I hope that's what I would say. That's what maturing believers should say. But do we really know we would do that? And let's make it even more personal. Maybe you're, you're absolutely confident that, that your faith is so strong, no matter what anyone tries to do to you, you're going to stand firm for the Lord. But what if they put a gun to your wife's head or your child's head or your grandchildren's head and said, JB, deny the Lord or they're, they're, I'm pulling the trigger? What would we do? So let's be very careful as we study this biblical doctrine of apostasy to not too hastily conclude, well, anybody that denies the Lord, they can't possibly go to heaven. All right? Let's, let's let the Bible speak to this issue, and that's what uh, the writer does here. So as we did with the first two warning passages in Hebrews, we're going to follow the same pattern to kind of outline the text, the caution, the concern, the consequence, and the cure. And so as we come to the danger of apostasy, what's the caution? The caution is this. He says, watch out for biblical ignorance. Watch out for biblical ignorance. Notice what he says in verse 1. Therefore, now, of course, therefore is a connecting word. Uh, grammatically, it sort of ties two sections in the argument together. And the same thing is true in Greek. And so what he's pointing back to is what he's just talked about, what we studied last week here at the end of chapter 5. And basically, he had, in that passage, he indicted his readers and, and us today, for whom it is applicable, for our lack of knowledge. And, and then he explains the remedy for 
that knowledge. And so he, he says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. So he says, you, you remember what he said in the last week? You know, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You, you've been Christians so long, you ought to really know the deeper truths of God's word, both the proper understanding of the Old Testament shadow of things to come, as well as the epistles that had been written thus far by the time Hebrews was written. Many of the epistles had been written and, and most of the Gospels. Um, so by this time you ought to be teachers. Instead, he said, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. Remember last week we called it, Do You Know Your ABCs? Because first principles there is the same idea as the elementary uh, principles. If we go back to our text this morning, the elementary principles of Christ. And he says, so let us go on to perfection. We'll come back to that. But he says, not laying again the foundation. See, the problem was these believers had regressed in their knowledge, had become, had become complacent. They weren't studying the Word of God. They weren't getting to know Him better. Therefore, they weren't trusting Him more. And therefore, they weren't obeying Him. So when their world was rocked by this persecution from Nero, they weren't prepared to trust God. They weren't prepared to say, though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. Instead, they departed from uh, the living God. And so uh, he, he says, what were some of these uh, foundational elementary principles? He actually lists some of them for us. Not laying again the foundation, what, of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. That's fundamentally the gospel. It's that your works, first century Jew, cannot commend you to a holy God. You cannot get into heaven because you pray the right prayers, give the right money, wear the right clothing, follow in line with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Self-righteousness has no place in heaven. If you want to get into the kingdom, Jesus taught, and Paul and the whole testimony of Scripture teaches, it's got to be by faith, not by works. Repentance simply means a change of mind. Repentance does not mean turning from sins. You don't see any reference here to sins. It just means to change your mind. It's a compound word in Greek metanoia, to, change, to think again or to change your mind. And he says, you already, the very basic thing that led you to faith in Christ was you repented from your dead works and you had faith toward God. And we don't need to keep going over that again. And he says, we don't need to lay the foundation of baptisms. The word baptisms here is a different word that's used of Christian baptism, say in the book of Acts. Uh, it's a, more of referring to Jewish ceremonial washings. And they, they had been taught all of that. They had been taught the true significance of those Judaistic customs and how they were simply a shadow of things to come fulfilled in Christ. They had talked about the laying on of hands, which in Judaism was part of the sacrificial ritual. And, uh, and it, by the way, it also, in the early days of Christianity, was part of the commissioning of people in Christian uh, service. They had been taught about the resurrection from the dead. You know, what's interesting is the Old Testament does not have a whole lot to say about things like the resurrection from de the dead. The Old Testament is, is all about national Israel and God's plan for Israel. Now, that doctrine is there, uh, but it's not emphasized the way it is in the New Testament after the death and resurrection of Christ. Remember, the entire New Testament was written after Christ died and rose from the dead. The earliest letter was probably Galatians. The earliest gospel was Matthew, both of which were written in the 40s A.D., so the resurrection happened in 33 A.D. So even though the Gospels tell the story and the eyewitness accounts of the life and ministry of Christ, which happened in the early 30s, 
the actual documents weren't written until at the earliest 10 years after that. So this teaching of the resurrection was very prevalent and it's fundamental to the gospel. Paul says, defines the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 as Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, was buried and rose from the dead according to the scriptures. No resurrection, no life, right? It's through his resurrection that he purchased life for us. And then he says, and you've also know very well all about eternal judgment. So let me ask you a question. If the writer introduces this section by telling his readers and by extension us that I do not need to talk to you about eternal judgment and eternal damnation, why do so many Bible teachers then go on to suggest the rest of this section of chapter 6 is all about warning people against hell? He just said, I don't need to tell you about that. You already know your home in heaven is secure. You know, and if you're a believer today, that issue is settled. You do not need to spend one second wondering whether or not you're going to go to heaven. To do so is an affront to the Son of God Himself who promised in John 10, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. And yet so many believers are plagued by this constant doubt because bad teaching and bad theology has convinced us to look at our lives and our behavior to see if we're really saved. And if there's any sin in our lives, we must not be saved, right? Uh, I hear preachers talk about this all the time. I was talking about this this week with, uh, with somebody. And we talked about it Wednesday night as well. Uh, the, 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 no, the erroneous notion that, quote, if there's consistent sin in your life, you must not be a believer. Well, we can put that issue to rest on the authority of God's Word, who says, I give you, when Jesus said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. But let's also put it to rest anecdotally with a little experiment. How many of you in here this morning are believers? Raise your hand. You know the Lord Jesus as your Savior. Amen. How many of you sin? Okay, good. How many of you sinned last week? Raise your hand. Good. How many of you sinned two weeks ago? How many of you admit to sinning ever since you became a believer in Jesus Christ? Sounds like we have a pretty consistent sin problem. If, there, if consistent sin meant that you're going to hell then Jesus didn't need to die on the cross. The very essence of salvation is by grace through faith. Grace is an undeserved, unmerited gift of God, not something we earn through our works. You're not saved by your good works, and you don't prove that you're saved by your good works. And so for just a second, I want to drive that point home by looking at the biblical teaching on eternal security. It's crucial that we understand this <clears throat> because you know, this passage has a strong warning against apostasy. And if we don't understand the clarity on the issue of eternal security, we might misunderstand Hebrews 6 and think, oh boy, I thought I was saved, but I might end up in hell after all, right? So remember, Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. And what does he say? You shall not come into judgment, but you have passed from death to life. In that moment where faith meets the gospel, in that moment, you're changed. Your spiritual DNA is changed. You become born from above. And nothing after that moment, even serious, egregious, major sin, cannot undo what Jesus did for you at the cross. Now, I know what many people think at this point. Well, are you saying that Christians can go on and sin, do whatever they want after they get saved? Well, sure, you can sin before you're saved, you can sin after, you can sin all you want. I don't recommend it. Uh, in fact, it's a terrible thing. And, you know, we have a video on our YouTube channel about the awfulness of sin. 
I have a colleague that I've worked with many times in ministry who's uh, produced an essay in which he lists 30-some-odd serious consequences of sin in the life of a believer. I'm t here to tell you, sin is a dangerous foe, and it will destroy lives. It will wreak havoc in your life. It will cause you to avoid the blessings of God. It will bring the natural consequences that come from sin. It will cost you eternal rewards at the beam of judgment. All kinds of problems with sin. Don't do it. <laughs> but that's a separate issue of whether something I can do after my conversion can cause me to end up in hell when the Lord Jesus said, you've passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. Our position in Christ is secure at that moment and is not contingent upon some future behavior. Right? Uh, Jesus said, I quoted this a moment ago, you shall, I give you eternal life, you shall never perish. He said, uh, most assuredly I say to you, whoever believes in me has present possession everlasting life. Uh, Peter uh, describes our eternal security this way. He says, we've been given an inheritance that does not fade away. Now, sometimes the word inheritance means a particular portion of inheritance in the kingdom, rewards, positions of service, special blessings. But sometimes the inheritance refers to our entire eternal life in the kingdom, such is the case here. Context determines meaning. But he says, to an inheritance that does not fade away, that is reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith. The moment we by faith trust God, at that point, it's God who keeps us. We don't have to worry about it. And you say, well, what if you stop believing? Well, even the Bible addresses that. Paul says, even if we are faithless, and he includes himself in this, by the way. Notice the first person plural, we. Even if we become faithless, the word faithless there in Greek is apistis, meaning no faith. Meaning we've turned our back on the Lord. We say, I don't believe in all in you. What does the Bible say? God remains faithful. You know why? Because he cannot deny himself. Even in, in earthly life, if a physical child denies his family and says, I, I disown you, I no longer have anything to do with you, a simple DNA test would prove that they're still a child of that family. And spiritually speaking, our DNA associates us with God when we've been adopted into his family. And while this is, as the writer is about to say, a very serious concern and something that no believer should contemplate, even if, even if, for whatever reason, we make the ill-advised decision to turn from the Lord, it does not change who we are in Christ, if you know the Lord. Now, what's the concern? What's the concern? So the caution is, you know, don't be biblically illiterate. Why? Because if you, do, if you are, you might fall away. You might fall away. Now, there can be no question here that he's talking about believers. Uh, he's already talked about how they are baby Christians. They, they, haven't, they grew, but then they regressed, and they need to grow some more. But let's just drive the point home, because the writer does here. First of all, he talks about these people as being enlightened and having, had, having tasted the heavenly gift <laughs> And I've had people say, well, they tasted, but they didn't swallow, you know, kind of like Bill Clinton. I didn't inhale or something, right? I tasted, but I didn't swallow, right? That's not what the Greek word tasted means here. And I can prove it to you because even in Hebrews, in a passage we've already looked at, he uses the same Greek word to speak of Jesus Christ having tasted death for everyone, Hebrews 2.9. Let me ask you, did Jesus fully experience death for everyone? He absolutely did. And so these people have indeed tasted the heavenly gift. That means they have received the gift of eternal life. 
And not only that, he makes it clear that they have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Only those who place their faith in Jesus Christ get the gift of the Holy Spirit. Unbelievers don't have the Holy Spirit. And again, he uses the word tasted as having tasted the good word of God. Those who receive the word of God. Um, so if you remain in biblical ignorance, believer, you may fall away. That's what he says. It is impossible for all these that he just describes as believers, if they fall away. Now, the word if in Greek here is literally since. In fact, some English translations, maybe the one you're holding in your lap at this moment, say, and have fallen away. That's really the better uh, concept here. The writer is talking to those who have not made this decision, and he's referring to those amongst their community who already have. And he's, uh, he's going to say something about those who have fallen away in just a moment. But he's saying, those who have fallen away which is the concern uh, and, and, and out of the caution of why you should not remain biblically illiterate, those who have fallen away are, are going to be uh, facing a pretty serious uh, consequence. So if they fall away, don't make it conditional here. He's saying and have fallen away or since they uh, have fallen away. What does it mean to fall away? Well, we talked about this at the outset. A conscious, deliberate, volitional decision of your own free will to abandon Christ for whatever reason. It's a decisive rejection of Christ, similar to what Peter did. Peter, for a period of time, was an apostate believer. You understand that, right? You can't deny Christ and curse Him consciously, powerfully, and emphatically and not be an apostate. He came back around, we know, after the resurrection. And by the way, that gives us hope, and the writer gives us hope here in Hebrews too, that if you're praying for an apostate Christian right now, they can come back. But it's not something that we're going to be able to drag them back for only God uh, can do it. So uh, he says, it is impossible for those who have fallen away, back, going back to the beginning of the sentence, to renew them again to repentance. Now what in the world does this mean? Does that mean an apostate Christian can never repent? Nope, this is where good hermeneutics come into play. The number one rule of hermeneutics is observation. Uh, Jim last week during the Lord's Supper service talked about an assignment that he had gotten. I had the same assignment except my verse was Acts 1.8, not John 3.16, where you had to make 25 observations from that verse and then 25 more and then 25 more. And we've got, we've got to get to know the Scripture so much that we make sure we observe what it's saying. And what we see here is that this is in the active voice. It does not say it is impossible for those who have fallen away to be renewed, passive voice. It says it's impossible to renew them again. In other words, repentance on the part of apostate Christians can only occur if God permits, as, he's going, as we, he says in verse 4, we skipped over, we're going to come back to it in a second. For some backslidden Christians, no amount of prodding, pleading, rebuking, arguing, dragging can bring them around. Only God can do it. So if you know an apostate Christian, the best thing you can do is pray for them. No guilt trips, no dragging and screaming and arguing and trying to convince them because basically the writer says that that's not going to work. Only God can do it. Only God can do it. Now, why is apostasy so serious? You know, we looked at the caution, which was, you know, be, be aware of biblical literacy. Watch out for it. Make sure you know the Word of God. Why? Because you might fall away. And now we see the consequence which there are actually two listed in this text, two things that he points out. There are many for turning away from the Lord. 
One of them is you bring shame to the Lord. You bring shame to the Lord. Now remember, the writer's argument from the outset, he starts out with a beautiful description in chapter 1, verse 1, of the glory of, of the Lord, how he represents God. And then he's made the argument now for five chapters about how Christ, the one who saved them, is superior to anything else on the earth, superior to angels, superior to Moses, superior to Aaron, superior to Judaism in general. So he's appealing now to this Lord who, is, who should be elevated in the eyes of the readers to say, do you really want to bring that kind of shame on your Savior? Notice what he says here in verse 6. If they fall away, it's impossible to renew them in repentance because they crucify again for themselves the Son of God. See, for these Jewish Christians, remember the context. To depart from Christ and revert back to Judaism would entail a return to all of the Jewish convictions and practices and, 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 and all of those types of things. And so in so doing, they were going to go back through the sacrificial system. And this Jesus, who the writer says is the once-for-all sacrifice, and the Old Testament Jewish sacrifices were simply a shadow, a foretelling of the ultimate Lamb of God sacrifice, if they go back then and start participating in those sacrifices, thinking again and abandoning Christ that He's not the one, they're going to essentially crucify the Lord again for themselves and put Him to an open shame. And, and that's something that you know, believers need to really think about before abandoning the faith. What about younger believers? What about your children? What about your friends? Whom you've testified for years in some cases about the Lord. And then, and then they see you. I mean, think about Peter. All the people that were stunned maybe when Peter abandoned Christ. But an apostate Christian brings shame to Christ by wearing his name and yet living in such a way that the devil gets the glory. I've, I, I changed my mind. I'm not going to follow Christ anymore. But there's another consequence, and that is you become useless. That is, you become useless. Useless in the, the, the plan of God. I want you to think for a moment how God has established one ordained means of presenting the gospel to a lost and dying world in the present age. And that is for you and I to share the gospel. Well, we can do that any number of ways. We can do that in gospel tracts. We can do that through radio programs, television programs, through church messages. We can do that sitting down over coffee and just telling them our story about the gospel. But if you and I don't share the gospel, people won't hear it. Right? Remember, general revelation is not enough. It's not sufficient to bring eternal salvation. They've got to hear the gospel. Now, the Bible tells us if people respond to general revelation, God will send them special revelation, namely the gospel. But you and I are it. I mean, God could have done it any number of ways. He could have written the gospel on, in the skies. He could have, you know, bellowed it from the mountains. He could have dropped gospel tracts miraculously from heaven. But He chose you, and He chose me. And when we depart from the living God, we are no longer fulfilling that purpose. We are useless in the plan of God. Notice what He says. He uses an analogy, and this often throws people, but it's an analogy. It starts with the word for that introduces this analogy. And analogies are just that. They're trying to make a point. What's his point? Well, he says, you know, the earth which drinks in rain, if it produces herbs that are useful, that's great. But if it produces, and it receives blessing, by the way. But, you know, when it doesn't, it's not. The mature Christians receive God's blessing. Okay. James reminds us that those who are doers of the word and not hearers only, this one will be blessed in what he does. But in going back to the analogy, if that land doesn't bear useful herbs, but bears, you know, there's the contrast there, uh, bears thorns and briars, then it's rejected. 
In other words, what do you do with thorns? You guys cleared a bunch of your land, Jeff, and you know all the, the non-useful parts. What do you do? You bundle up. You probably burned it, right? It doesn't serve a purpose. And certainly in that day, in that agricultural day, it didn't. They needed land that could be useful, right? And so they gathered it up and burned it. Now, you know, it's sad how many people see the word burned here and say, oh, it must be talking about hell. It's an analogy. These are not real briars. They're not real thorns. They're not real herbs. It's not real land. It's not real rain. It's an analogy. And every time you see the word fire, it's not talking about hell. Nothing in this passage talks about heaven or hell. The fire is just a common metaphor for burning things up that aren't valuable. We see Christians facing the fire of God at the beam of judgment where our acts that we were done that were not effective for the Lord and done out of a heart of faith are burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. Later on, the writer is going to describe God himself as a consuming fire. Fire doesn't mean hell. Fire, just as in the analogy here, how you burn up the things that aren't useful. Similarly, if we depart from the Lord, we're no longer useful. Not going to burn us up because we're not herbs or, or we're not briars and thorns, right? Um, it's an analogy, you know. Um, not every believer, sadly, will produce useful fruit for the Lord. I remember we when we many years ago we had a tree in our backyard. We lived in this house for a couple of years. We had this tree back there. I'm not much of a tree guy. I didn't know what kind of tree it was, but I remember one day coming home from work. I was teaching at a school at the time, and the kids met me in the driveway. They're all excited because this tree had suddenly produced a bright orange orange, just one, up on a branch in the tree, and we discover, ha, huh, this is an orange tree. Now, did that orange tree become an orange tree on that day that it produced an orange? Or was it always an orange tree? It was always an orange tree. It was not well taken care of. It was not well nourished. It was not a healthy orange tree. As far as I know, it never produced another orange, but it was an orange tree. Healthy believers who are walking by faith, steadfastly standing firm in the faith, will produce naturally the fruit of the Spirit and will pr produce good works. Unhealthy believers who are not maturing Christians and may even have a, turned away from the Lord entirely are not likely to produce fruit. They're not useful in that regard. So what's the cure? The cure is to go on to maturity. That's why it's so important, as the writer said in the passage we looked at last week, to study the Word. He, get, he says, let us go on to perfection. Perfection. Now that's an unfortunate translation in our English Bible because we think of perfect, we think of something that, well, is perfect, right? No flaws whatsoever. Uh, the Greek word here is the word teleos. It means mature, complete, full-grown. And the word perfect, teleos, is used 19 times in Scripture. And as with all words, context has to determine meaning. Sometimes we speak of perfection in an absolute sense, a positional sense, as when Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, you've got to be perfect to get into the kingdom. And then we need Christ's righteousness to make us perfect. But sometimes, in fact, more often, it's used in a practical sense of this idea of maturity. Maturity. In fact, the writer used this same word, teleos, in the passage we looked at last week. And I bet you missed it because I didn't point it out. And it doesn't translate perfect or mature. But remember what he said? Solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That phrase, of full age, in English, is one word in Greek, Teleos, perfect, mature. We see this come up again and again in the New Testament. For example, James says that if we walk by faith 
and we trust God in the midst of trials, we will be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We will be teleos, mature, mature in the faith. Paul put it this way, don't be children in understandings, but be mature, teleos, same word, same word. In Ephesians, Paul said, the goal is to come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. Some people have misunderstood this passage to think that you can achieve perfection this side of glory. That you can overcome sin entirely to get to the point where you never sin again. Well, I'm glad that's not the standard, or we just determined earlier that we're all in big trouble, right? Uh, no, he's talking here about maturity. That's the goal. Unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, and a maturity together. So the writer, going back to the text, says, Let us go on to perfection. And this, this going on to perfection, we will do if God permits. Remember, it's not something that I can drag you back into a right relationship with the Lord. If someone makes the conscious volitional decision to turn from God, it's impossible for me to renew them again. It's impossible for you to renew them again. And it's impossible for Paul, or for the writer of Hebrews' readers, to those who've already turned away, to drag them back into the fold. But God can do it. Not impossible for them to be renewed. It's just impossible to renew them again. In fact, he says, we're confident of better things concerning you. The better things is, is the writer's confidence that his readers would not turn away from the truth. And uh, he, he's confident that they will do things that accompany salvation. Again, the normal, natural thing for a believer to do if you've been saved, what should normally come with salvation is a life of godliness, Christ-likeness, maturity, good works. But just because we see a person who says they're a believer living like the devil doesn't mean they're not a Christian. Now let me quickly add, that doesn't mean that everyone who says they're a Christian is. There are many false professors out there. Many people say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they've never actually trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone, which is the only way you can become a Christian. They walked an aisle, they signed a card, they had an emotional response, they prayed some chant or prayer, they made a commitment of some kind but they've never heard and believed the pure gospel. So I'm not suggesting that everyone who says there's a Christian, they're a Christian is a Christian. There are many false professors out there. But what I am saying is just because a person commits egregious sins or is living with consistent sin, which you all admitted you are, uh, doesn't mean they're not a Christian. The only thing that matters when it comes to whether or not you're a Christian is have you trusted in Christ. And so the writer says, I'm confident that you won't do what these other first century Jewish Christians have done. Hang on to the faith. Go on to maturity. Don't abandon the faith. Don't apostatize. And he says, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, how you've ministered to the saints. One of the marks of spiritual maturity is love and ministering to other believers. Another mark of spiritual maturity is diligence. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Don't give up. Even though you're facing terrible circumstances, don't give up. Don't become sluggish. Why? Because if you become sluggish, guess what? You might be one of those who makes that conscious decision to turn away. But instead, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Here he's talking about the rewards that those get who are faithful. He's Previously we talked about this with the children of Israel. Remember, the children of Israel in the wilderness, all but Joshua and Caleb, because they had a lack of faith, didn't get to experience the blessings of milk and honey. Many of them are in heaven today if they knew the Lord, but they missed out on the earthly blessings. And same is true for those who choose to turn away 
from the Lord. The Bible teaches that there is a reward of the inheritance for those who continue to serve the Lord heartily. And later on in Hebrews, we've come back to this verse again and again. He's going to remind them, don't cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Instead, receive the promise. So what kind of Christian are you? A maturing Christian? See, maturity is not so much a place as it is a path. Are you on that path? If you're on that path and you're going on to perfection, then you don't have to worry about apostasy. But you step off that path, you begin to regress, you get out of the Word of God, you stop fellowshipping with believers, which I believe is one of the devil's big goals right now with what all is going on in the world, is to get Christians to quit worshiping corporately. Say, oh, well, I can sit at home and watch a video in my living room. Yeah, you could always do that. The writer here in Hebrews is not going to go on and say, you know, stop watching videos. He's going to say, you know, don't stop. He's not going to say, don't stop watching videos. He's going to say, don't stop assembling yourselves together. There's a synergy that comes from being around other believers. Um, if you step off that path, there's a danger of apostasy. And apostasy should never be taken lightly. The caution is to watch out for biblical ignorance. Why? Because you may fall away. And not only that, you may bring shame to the Lord and become useless for Him. So the cure is to go on to maturity. So a little bit of a different takeaway. One sentence here that I'm about to put up on the screen. Rather than a challenge, I usually like to leave you with a challenge. This time I'm going to leave you with information. That's not the right way to preach, but it's such an important principle that I want you to leave here thinking it. And I think the application will be obvious. But here's the principle. Never forget biblical ignorance leads ultimately to apostasy. The next time you see yourself slipping out of the Word, slipping away from fellowship with the Lord, remember this principle. You may never imagine it. You, you say, I could never dream of becoming an apostate. Many apostates have said that before you. Biblical ignorance leads ultimately to apostasy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for this uh, uh, pretty tough reminder. Lord, I pray that it would fall on receptive hearts and ears, that all of us would recognize the value of getting to know you better and better and better through your word and through the teaching of your word so that we never make that ill-fated decision of turning away from you. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.